In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. And you know what that means. That means you have George and David on the beautiful stream of consciousness on which you are all invited to grab a floating device and come on with us. David, I'm so stoked you're here with us today. Would you be so kind as to reintroduce yourself as you do on every Tuesday? Of course. Thank you, George. Thanks for having me again. Uh, It's been a a real treat to be with you every Tuesday like this. Um, So I am uh, David Solomon. I'm the Director of Undergraduate Research and Creative Activity at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia. I have been a professor of medieval religion, literature, and culture for the past 25, 30 years. Um, Written a a few books. My most recent book is on the seven deadly sins. And uh, do a lot of research and a lot of reading in a lot of areas and a lot of things that overlap with with the interests of my friend George here, and so we get to uh, to chat about that. Yeah, I always look forward to Tuesdays, and before we got started, we had talked about how we begin on a topic, but sometimes we end up on a little tributary or a tangent or something like that, and I've got a lot of feedback from people that are enjoying the conversation, and I don't know if you've noticed, but I was looking on your LinkedIn page, and there's all these comments that say, more David Solomon. Have you seen that? Are you kidding? There is no. I think that there are. I think you should be looking at it. It's pretty impressive. I'll have to take a look. I'll take a look. I, I don't go on LinkedIn all that often, I got to admit. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we're here today to talk a little bit about the shadow. Do you have any opening shadow. thoughts? Yeah. What do you think yes, about I it? Like, cue, I, cue, I cued this up because I think it's just perfect. Hopefully, you can hear it. There you go. That is beautiful. <laughs> so that's the opening, of course, of the shadow, the the old radio uh, 
serial. And actually, that that particular version of it, I think that's Orson Welles actually, um, who did the opening for the for for a few years. Um, but yeah, so we're going to talk a bit about the about this idea of the shadow and what that means to us as uh, as humans and and why it's important. Yeah, yeah, I um. I think that we both have a fond and a tremendous respect for the Jungian idea of the shadow. And I'm, I think that both of us have probably been faced with some pretty dark times where we were forced to incorporate or at least stare down our shadow if we were unable to integrate yeah. it. But what do you, what do you think? What, like when you first hear the shadow, like what comes to your mind? Yeah. What do you think about? Well, I mean, it, it, it was a revelation to me personally when I discovered this idea in Jung early on when I started studying Jung, because it seemed both very relevant and also um, potentially horrifying to have to deal with as aspects of yourself that are negative slash dark, um, that are the kinds of things which uh, you know Freud would describe as repressed but Jung has a very different approach to it, and his approach is that you you really can't repress these things and grow as an individual. You need to confront them um, and and basically work through it. And and if you don't mind, I pulled out Jung's very short. I mean, it's what three pages in his book Ion, his piece that's called The Shadow, which is kind of I mean for me the definitive spot to go for what he says about this. And there's a paragraph in particular where he is just spot on to, for me. He says, the shadow is a moral problem that challenges the whole ego personality. For no one can become conscious of the shadow without considerable moral effort. To become conscious of it involves recognizing the dark aspects of the personality as present and real. This act is the essential condition for any kind of self-knowledge. And it therefore, as a rule, meets with considerable resistance. Indeed, self-knowledge as a psychotherapeutic measure frequently re requires much painstaking work extending over a long period. And it just reminds me, because we, we, we were talking last week a little bit about, about the importance of, of quote-unquote, doing the work. Um, and I think that that is really integral to what Jung is talking about here when he talks about the shadow self and dealing with those aspects of your personality that quite honestly, most of us would rather ignore. Yeah. In a weird way, a lot of us growing up were always taught to sort of repress it. And I don't know if that's a societal thing, but I, I found that. Especially I, men, right? George? Especially I mean, men. In, yes. in, in, in our culture, definitely. Right. I mean, you know, if you, if you're just going to going to equate it with, you know, and and the the stereotype of dealing with your emotions, um, you know, men were are are traditionally taught to to swallow all that, and be more stoic and 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 rational, whereas women um, stereotypically were looked at as being you know the emotional sex, right? I mean, they they they're able they're allowed to do that, they were permitted to do that, whereas you know we largely as men were were not. Yeah, and it, that manifests itself in all kinds of problems. It seems that when we don't want to assimilate what we despise, then we project it onto other people. And I think that that's Absolutely. what we teach young guys when we 
when we just tell them to suck it up or hey, don't be violent or we have all these things that are probably good advice, but we don't explain how to do that. We just yeah. say, don't do it. Absolutely. And, and you're absolutely right about projecting it onto someone else. There's a, a wonderful piece by Ursula Le Guin, the, uh, the science fiction writer, although she's much more than that, um, called the, Chi the Child and the Shadow. And she's actually talking in this piece about Hans Christian Andersen's piece called The Shadow. He wrote a short story called The Shadow. But then she progresses from there and she starts talking about Jung. And she um, says, unadmitted to consciousness, the shadow's projected outward onto others. There's nothing wrong with me. It's them. I'm not a monster. Other people are monsters. I'm not a communist. Other people are communists. All foreigners are evil. All capitalists are evil. It was the cat that made me kick him, mummy. Right? It's this, it's this projecting of everything onto others. And in many ways, it's part of what I talk about in the book on Seven Deadly Sins, right. was shifting the blame. Right, it's not accepting the blame for your own um, transgressions, and instead placing that on someone else's head. And we see it in in the in the Genesis story in the Garden of Eden. Right, I mean, God comes down to Adam and Eve and says to Adam, "You know, what did you do?" And Adam says, "Well, that woman you gave me, you know, she she gave me the fruit to eat." And then he goes to Eve and he says, "Eve, what did you do?" And she says, "Well, the serpent tempted me, made me eat." Um, and so there's this this recurrent shifting of blame and inability or an unwillingness really and i think it may be a little bit of both at this point to accept responsibility for our own actions and that's really what the shadow self is all about because it's accepting responsibility for actions that you know they're not the kinds of things you want to put on your resume yeah without a doubt and it it it's so metaphorical to me because the shadow's dark. You know, when I, when I think about your book, The Seven Deadly Sins, and we went in depth about that book, it seems that there's a dark and a light side to those sins. In some ways, integrating those sins or learning about them is a way for you to understand how to live an effective life where they can't. the way they become real mortal sins is when you project them or when you don't understand them. You know, like that's when you get really sure. deep in that stuff. Well, and I think because I think part of the, the, the whole point of the, the concept of the seven deadly sins and, and really the concept of sin itself is that those are the negative aspects of what make us human beings, but they are part of what make us human beings. And so without them, in some sense, we are, we are in a way less human, but dealing with that and understanding how to deal with those kinds of things. I mean, understanding, for example, how to deal with your own individual um, sense of pride, um, can be incredible. I mean, it's an incredible growth experience to be as an individual to deal with that. But as we have said before, I mean, it's also it takes a lot of work, and it also can be very painful because you are going to be sitting there looking at yourself in the mirror, um, you know, for quite a while in quite a very deep way. And um, I don't know about you, but I, I hate mirrors. <laughs> I don't like looking at myself, and I, I, I you know, I, I, I despise hotel rooms where they've got so many mirrors all over the place. I don't want to see myself. Um, but it reminds me of the, the scene in Hamlet where Hamlet tells his mother to to sit down and 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 look at this glass, the mirror, and and really look at yourself, look at your soul. And when she does that, she's horrified. She says, "I, I can't. You know, I, I see, I see black spots on my soul." She says which are the indications of, of sin. 
Yeah, it's like when you know deep down you're doing something wrong, but you just don't want to face it, you know, for for whatever reason, maybe it's pride or maybe it is guilt or whatever it is, it's it's you know there's a problem. And I think that that is symbolic of your – like when you look down on a sunny day, you see your shadow following you. And like there's so much knowledge. Like you can't get away from it. It's always there. And then yeah. sometimes – you know, you can look down and your shadow's elongated, like, uh-oh, what does this mean, you know? Or sometimes we hear people, wow, you cast a pretty big shadow on people. There's yeah. all these references that if you just stop and think about the way they're being talked about, you can really assimilate them into your life or how you're living and or even seeing seeing your shadow in other people. You can – I'll never forget when a few years ago I had gone through some pretty big tragedies, and that was the first time I really began to see – my projections and other people. I'll give you an example. I was at work one day and I was talking to this person. I was in a bad, I was in a foul mood. And this person was probably just reflecting back to me how I was acting to them. And I'm like, this person is just such an arrogant, condescending knucklehead. And I, I, I know what they're doing. They're saying all these things to me because they want me to do this other thing. And I'll never forget. I, I just, I put my head down and I, I looked back up and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, that's me. I'm the, the the arrogant knucklehead. I am the one, you know, and like that was the revelation of the shadow for me. Yeah. But I mean, that that level of self-awareness is not common. It it takes a degree of 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 work with who you are to be able to realize that, but then also to then admit it and deal with it. Right. So, I mean, there's yes. various parts of this. There's the one of recognizing it. This is the other of okay. Well, how do I fix that then? Um, and you know, again, not to not to be repetitive, but it is it's hard work, um, and it takes time, and it takes um, not just that kind of self reflection, but almost self dissection, where you start to take apart who you are and try to understand why you're doing certain things. And you know, I mean, I, I I've done the same thing. Uh, in my life, George, I mean, seeing, you know, now after, after working through a lot of that, being able to see some of those things in other people and recognize it and say, oh yeah, that's, I, I recognize that. Cause that's, that was part of my shadow self. And I dealt with that. I understand who that, what that is and who that is. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, w you know, in some ways, um, and, and I think, you know, this is a, a, a very Jungian approach as well is, I mean, the shadow it's part of who we are. Right. Um, and everyone has it. Um, you know, without a shadow, you're, you're, you're not a person. Right. I mean, as you say, I mean, you're walking around outside. I mean, there's a shadow. Um, and that is part of who we are. And I suppose, you know, the, the real trick here is how we uh, learn to, to deal with it, how we learn to work with it. Um, and I think that's also part of what Jung is trying to say, which is, you know, don't fight against it. You need to understand what that shadow self is and be able to, in a ways, reconcile yourself to the shadow self so that you can understand better how you can move forward. Um, because I think that, you know, and, and the, 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 the danger here is to look at, and my students do this sometimes, to look at the shadow self and say, well, it's purely negative. Shadow self is evil. No, it's not. It is, it is the parts of yourself that are dark, 
And we all have parts of ourselves that are dark. And that's not necessarily a horrible thing. That, again, is what makes us human. And so, you know, reconciling ourselves with those things, I think, is only going to increase our humanity. Yeah, that's well put. And I, it's it's interesting. I think the very idea that a lot of people say this part of me is completely negative is exactly what shuts them off from it. Because that means so you've got it, the, the student or the people that believe it's all negative. They got it halfway right. But that's the very wedge that is driven between them that yeah. won't let them integrate. Because if if they say it's part of me, then they have to acknowledge that they're a little bit of darkness and that they're capable of some horrific acts. And I think that in some in some weird way, the only way to truly have empathy is to integrate your shadow, because the truth is we are all capable of some horrendous things. Yeah. And we probably, if we're honest with ourselves, have all done some pretty horrendous things. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I've been reading um, this, this, this small book, which was written in 1944, I bet by the, uh, I, I would call him a philosopher, Denis de Rougemont. Um, he wrote some really uh, important books on, on love in the Middle Ages. And, mm. and this book, um, which he wrote in 1944, I'd never even heard of before last week. It's called The Devil's Share. Um, mm. And it's basically, it's really about Hitler. Um, he's really addressing the questions about Hitler and Nazism and their relationship to evil and, and the devil. And it's really interesting because I, I'm about three quarters of the way through it. And um, much of what he's saying is that it's a projection of things that we already have inside of ourselves, that in some sense we, um, we created this monster and you know it, it 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 brings me to 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 something which i've had written on the whiteboard in my office now for probably two years um and i haven't been able to get to this because it's something it's i, I can't wrap my head around it yet and i got this out of reading Jung, which is is it possible that the devil satan is god's shadow self and I think that there's something there about that. And if anybody steals the idea, I'm coming after you. Um, but I, I've had this written on my whiteboard because it, it popped up the last time that I taught, taught my course on Jung, which now is about, I think it was before the pandemic. And um, I think that there's just something very interesting about that idea that, and, and Jung touches on this in places in his work, that that the devil is really an aspect of the divine, that in some ways it's the shadow self of divinity. Um, now, of course, that for for pure, you know, Roman Catholics and and other devout um, believers, that's blasphemous because it 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 turns God into a, a person, anthropomorphizes him, and um, we we don't want to do that. We want to keep the divinity as a divinity. But I think that's the difference when you start looking at Jung and you're talking about religion and theology in Jung, it's more about culture and archetypal criticism than it is about pure theology. Um, you know, I mean, I, 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 I consider myself a, a, a scholar of religious studies. I'm not a theologian. Um, you know, well, what's the difference? Well, a theologian, theology is the study of 
theos of God, and it assumes the existence of its subject. It already assumes God exists. Religious studies studies religions from a from a from in theory a more um, objective viewpoint, insider outsider, and I don't think Jung, even with his his Christian background and the fact that he was um, his father had hoped that he would become a pastor, um, even with that still there, I think that in many ways what he's doing with religion is really looking at it from a very very different perspective. Um, and it's, it's incredibly interesting to me. Uh, you know, I think we had mentioned a couple of weeks ago his his what he has to say about the mass and and the the transformation of the the um, the wafer and the wine. And uh, you know, it's just incredible stuff. But it's more on the level of mythology and culture than it is theology. And of course, today people have kind of a hard time separating those things. I think. Um, at least my students often do. Um, you know, if they come into a class with a, a Christian background, it's difficult for them to kind of put that on hold and look at something with with a different viewpoint. They can't get out of their own um, their own set of 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 eyes and their own perspective growing up uh, raised religious. And uh, you know, I, I, I've dealt with that over the years. I teach a course on the Bible. Called the Bible is literature, um, and students will always come into that class thinking, "Oh, well, I know the Bible," uh, you know, because they were raised Christian and and went to church, and they think they know everything about it. And first of all, we start with the Old Testament, which most Christians are are are, if not illiterate, certainly less literate in. And even when we get to the New Testament, a lot of times we see things and they look at things and they're surprised. Um, so they realize that it's because my approach to teaching that is not from a theological perspective. We're looking at those as stories. Um, we're looking at the at the history of it. And so it's a very different take on things. And I think that's what Jung is doing as well. Yeah, that there's some great points in there. I, I think with the amount of time that you've had that on your whiteboard, I think that you're going to come up with some really good material from there, you know, it, in some ways. And then to follow up on what you said, I think that a lot of people that are raised in a specific religion are raised in the shadow of their parents' belief of that sure. religion. And that's why it's so dark, like it's dark around them. They can't see the other aspects of different religions because they're in the shadow of these giant ideas that were thrust upon them. And at such yeah. an early age, if you were, if the doors are shut around you, then, you know, it doesn't leave a whole lot of light to get in. Well, it, it's 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 part of what we talk about when we talk about getting a, a liberal arts education, right? The, the liberal and liberal arts is freedom, mm. right? You're being freed of preconceived notions, and most often, as you note, I mean, that comes from from family and from parents, and we're not looking at that and saying that's a negative thing. We're just saying we are trying now for you to, as a as a thinking critical adult, to make some of these choices and these decisions on your own without the influence of your parents. Um, and that can be a really hard thing to do. Um, and, it, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's the old stereotype about going to college to find yourself, right? Um, but that's what we're talking about, right? right? It, it's about finding out who you are, um, separate from your parents, 
who you've always been connected to. So yeah, I think that that is absolutely true. And um, as we say, I mean, for some people, that is that's very hard to do uh, because you know essentially you've been ingrained with these ideas from birth uh, with the, from the people that you that you have lived with who've raised you and have basically told you what you're going to believe as a young kid. And then the, 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 the awkward stage of now, well, no, I don't believe that. This is what I believe. That can be, um, it can be painful. Yeah. Through that. Yeah. It, you know, it brings me to another couple points that young was talking about. He, I believe, Oh gosh, I can't quote the exact book it was from, but I wrote down, wrote down some notes that, that had said he talked about two types of shadow the personal shadow and the collective shadow the yeah. personal shadow being the unknown dark side of our personality and the collective shadow being the unknown dark side of society and how the personal shadow can be a bridge to the collective shadow right and we recently addressed like world war ii germany how you know you could say that hitler or some aspects of that society were operating from a dark part and so they they began to act out and uh, on the oppressed people for whatever for whatever reason you know you could see the collective shadow the dark side coming to the top because it maybe it was never integrated and i wonder if maybe technology today or the world we live in is sort of the, like the shadow is showing its head because we have failed to integrate and i think what what do you think about that yeah no i i, I think you're 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 on the right track i mean certainly um, you know, let's talk a little bit about the personal and the collective first. Sure. He he. So the 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 parallel there is the distinction for Jung between personal unconscious and the collective unconscious, right? The personal unconscious is our individual experiences as human beings, and the collective unconscious is the accumulation of the experiences and and all of the stuff of us as a as a collective as as humanity as a species. Um, and it's the reason why he can connect things that have happened to human beings 10,000 years ago with what you're experiencing today because we're all humans, right? So the, the personal shadow and the collective shadow are parts of that same kind of idea. Um, certainly, I think that part of what has gone on, especially, and it's funny because as much as I read these writers who are writing around World War One and around World War II and talking about what was going on in the world, and I read them today in 2022, I'm always struck by the fact that I read them and I say, that's today. Um, you know, and, and I don't know if that's, I, I don't know what, I mean, in some ways that is sad because you, you think we're going to get past some of these issues that are, that are so negative, but you know, in this book on uh, on the Devil's Share, um, de Rochemont's talking about the rise of Hitler. And I mean, it sounds like so much of what's going on in democratic societies around the world, not just in the U.S. Um, and I think you're right. You know, it, 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 it gives rise then to oppression. And, and when people feel that sense of um, just not inadequacy, but but unsettledness and, and, and insecurity, uh, I mean, I look at what's going on, for example, in Iran right now with the protests in the streets um, with these young women. I mean, it's it's just amazing to watch. But 
um, it makes me wonder, you know, why now? And, and yeah, I mean, there was one case, one young woman who had been arrested by the morality police and I believe was executed. Um, and that was the reason, the, the impetus for this most recent uprising. But I don't know about you, but I, I never remember an uprising like this in Iran in my lifetime, not since the Shah, um, and it, it, especially from women who are in the streets burning their hijabs and cutting their hair. Wow. Um, but what does that say then about the society and the, the, and, and the governmental structure there at a higher level? And it seems to indicate when something like that happens, just this instability. And instability can be good and it can be bad, right? I mean, I think about the instability here in the U.S., for example, after George Floyd was killed. And we had our um, situation with, with, with the rioting and, and, the, and the protests and the reaction by our government. And... I, I mean, I, I remember sitting at home watching that stuff on, on, on CNN and, and really being not only unsettled, but afraid um, that this was going to break out into all anarchy. And it's funny because now when I go to D.C., which is not far from me, and I walk over to the White House and walk down what is now Black Lives Matter Plaza and stand right in front of that church, it, it's hard to believe what had happened there just not that long ago. Um, and that's the same reason, I'm sure, why people are taken to traveling and visiting the, the concentration camps, for example, you know, to be at the site where that had occurred and to reflect on it. But it, it, it's not going away. I mean, the, the shadow self, the, 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 the collective shadow self seems to be rearing its head um fairly often these days around the world and i don't know if that's partially because we as a collective are unwilling to deal with it and are trying to ignore it or there's something else going on that you know sociologists might be able to tell us about yeah it's that's a big question and i i hope we find the answer you know, maybe maybe we can look for some clues in the past or we can look for some clues yeah. in young or better yet we can look for some clues in ourselves and understand that whatever we repress comes back stronger whether it's yeah. a feeling whether it's a class of people whether it is a silly law whatever it is that we repress is something that's going to come back and bite us unless we deal with it. you can't ignore yeah. these tragedies and in some ways i wonder if you know, it takes a tragedy. Sometimes, like if you look at people in your life or yourself that have gone to counseling, it takes a tragedy to bring it to the forefront because you've gotten so good at repressing it. Maybe that's manifested itself in being overweight or being rude or manifested these crazy symptoms, but it takes a tragedy in order to bring it to the head. And I just hope that we can get to the point where we don't have to go through a world tragedy yeah. in order to deal with it. I, I would hope so too, but I mean, if if you look historically, then and I'm uh, historically, I'm just saying in the last hundred years, and look at what we went through collectively as a society after World War One or World War Two, and we thought that we had come out, and you know, I mean, World War One for the longest time was called the war to end all the wars, 
Um, you know, yeah. that, that was wrong. Um, and so I, I don't know about that, but I, I, what you say is interesting because I had a therapist once, probably the best therapist I've ever had. And we, and we, I remember talking about certain things and, and, uh, and we'd hit on a topic and she would say, okay, you know, do you want to explore that? And I, I would sort of dance around it and she'll say, okay, you're not ready to do that yet. And I, I said, well, why not? And she said, well, you, you, you're not, you're not in enough pain. Um, you know, it, it, you had to get to that point. Um, unfortunately, you have to be pushed to that point. And um, certainly one hopes that just collectively, as a, as a species, as a world, we don't have to be pushed to that point. Um, you know, I've been reading a lot in the last couple of days about, you know, Biden's mention of Armageddon and the, the rise of of nuclear weapons and, and the use of nuclear weapons in North Korea and, and Russia. And, um, you know, I, th I think Biden said the other day, this was the, the most serious nuclear um, uh, issue that we've had since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that's stunning um, because most people would agree if you study the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we were right on the brink there. Um, so you know, it, it it's it's a matter of it's a matter of understanding who we are as human beings. I mean, as as I said before, I mean, all of my work comes down to, you know, how do we understand each other better as human beings and appreciate each other as members of humanity. And um, when I see what's going on, for example, in Ukraine. Um, in these last couple of days, I mean, what what the heck is going on there? These are people. These are people, and the 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 way that politics has grown to become so divisive globally now, um, not just here in the U.S. Um, you know, to be sure, you know, we've always had an issue with that. But it seems to be more incendiary today. Um, and maybe it's because of technology and the speed with which we lead our lives. I mean, if you if you studied the history of the American Civil War, I mean, that was slow, <laughs> you know, and, and things don't happen that slowly anymore. Um, you know, so much is made about the holiday of Juneteenth because, you know, the slaves in Texas finally heard that they were free. How many months was that after the the Emancipation Proclamation was was actually issued? Um, you know, now it's just it's it's instant, and that is good and that is bad, right? Um, I mean, I know myself personally. I cut back on the amount of news that I watch on TV dramatically in the last nine months. I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, it was just it was too much. Um, and it's not that I don't want to know the news. I mean, I'm still, I read the print news. Um, I read a lot of print news. You know, I read some online stuff, although I try to stay away from that as well. Um, but I'm not watching nearly as much TV news as I was. My default when I used to go home was to turn CNN on. I, I don't do that anymore. Um, it's just, it's, it's overwhelming. And it doesn't mean that I don't care. Um... It's just the the constant pounding of all of this just bad news 
is um, I, I don't think it's beneficial in the long run to us individually. I agree. I, it's it's in some ways it seems to me like it's the shadow being projected onto us. Like so much negativity is just being bombarded on people. And I've noticed it in my community where people are really short with each other. And you start talking to, oh, I had a bad day. My car broke down. I had this. And it's like, wow, that doesn't really seem like that event that you had warrants the attitude that you yeah. have. But when you step back and you realize how much pressure people are under, exactly, then it begins to make sense. And if you yeah. do start, and, and it's a weird it's a weird thing because people want to pay attention to things they care about because they're good people. But then when the information gets reflected back to them, it's almost like their anger is being channeled in a certain way. Hate these people. Hate yeah. this person. Look at all these people you could hate. But in some ways, it's forcing you to look in another direction instead of look at yourself. Like, oh, you know what? I, I kind of have this idea. You know what? That brings me – this whole idea of news and um, the shadow brings me to – uh, this pro there's a piece by Edward Bernays in this book called Propaganda, and I think it's 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 really relevant. It says, "We are governed, our minds molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society has been organized. It doesn't mean it has to be organized that way, but it means that in some ways, propaganda." I'm not saying that news is propaganda, but a lot of it is trying to get their opinion out there. And if you look at it from just that particular couple sentences, we are governed, mm -hmm. our minds molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested. I think that that is a form of the shadow. You know, it's it's an it's an unrealized look at the world when you don't take time to realize the light, the truth that could be happening. Instead, you you give in to the easy idea that's given to you, then it's 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 dark for so many reasons. It's dark because part of you realizes that's not your truth. That's someone else's truth. That's someone else's pain. And you can't fix someone else's pain. And so all that's left is the darkness there. And when I look at the world folding today, like I, there's no difference between Ukrainian people and Russian people and American people. And it's not the people that are doing this. It's it's a handful yeah. of leaders that are fighting over resources for non-government organizations and family offices and, you know, leg don't, this don't idea of legacy. Personal egos. Personal egos. <laughs> are you kidding me? It's it's the people yeah. that haven't integrated their shadow. But the interesting thing in that Bernays quote, and Bernays is the, the this is the guy who the advertising guy, right? Right, he, right. Yeah, he was revolutionary in 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 advertising and and Subliminal advertising in particular. I think he was related directly to Freud. Yeah, I think so. Um, but the interesting thing in that quote is the the form of the verbs, which all takes the agency away from the individual. Wow, I didn't even catch that. You're right. Well done. He says, he says you're forced to. It's suggested. right? It's mm -hmm. nothing that's coming from you. It's external. Um, and that that's incredibly dangerous. Right. I mean, I, you know, I mean, newsflash, you know, if you're losing <laughs> personal agency, then um, this should be a red flag. Something's going on. Um, and and it, it, part of it is about the, the, the sheep, right, about hurting the sheep. Um, and that's what leaders want to do. And leaders are, you know, presidents and prime ministers and also the heads of corporations. Right? Yes.
yes. um, who you know want sheep because they want everybody to buy this product over that product. Um, and that is it, it is very dangerous. And and it's uh, you know I, I think that there's I think in some ways you can actually talk about a sense of self and shadow self in just about any entity. And that can be in a corporation too, right? Absolutely. I mean, we see corporations that have certainly dark sides to them. Um, I mean, I've been reading a lot in the last couple of weeks about the various large corporations in the US and, and who and to what causes they're donating money. Um, and I'm, I'm I'm never certain how accurate it is what I'm reading, so I'm I'm not going to name any names. But there were two companies that were mentioned, and and I I do business with those companies all the time, and I was a little bit horrified to find out that they were funding some of these things that I am completely opposed to, and I want to investigate that further. Uh, but you know, they would say, well, you know, we're a big company, and you know, we don't know everything that's being done, and blah blah blah, but. That seems like an excuse to me, right? It's an excuse about size. And we, we see this going on with universities and colleges in the last 10 years who are divesting from various organizations and companies when they realize that they are actually big investors in those companies and they don't agree with their values anymore. Um, maybe they did once. Uh, you know, most recently we've seen it a lot with with uh, investments in companies that have a heritage in in slavery. Um, I mean, I don't know if it's going on there out there in Hawaii, but up and down the East Coast within the last three, four years, um, we've had just school after school be renamed public schools, community colleges. Um, if it was named after someone who was somehow involved with or even owned slaves um, that they're renaming the schools. Um, we've had a bunch of them in the area here in Virginia, no surprise, um, including a community college right down the street, which was named after a guy named Thomas Nelson. I couldn't tell you the first thing about Thomas Nelson, but apparently he owned slaves. Um, and so the board voted to change the name of the school. Man, it's, I haven't seen a whole lot of it here in Hawaii. Yeah. But it's a it's you know Hawaii <clears throat> Hawaii is this giant melting pot of so much yeah. eastern influence and you know it seems to me that there there is a different type of 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 um minorities here and and be, but it, it there's also a different type of relationship between different people and different mm -hmm. cultures and stuff. So in some ways, it's very beautiful. I could I could see that happening. I, I often wonder if that's the right move. I think sometimes, like it, you know, I, I don't know because I'm I'm not black or I've you know I've, I'm not part of a minority. At least in Hawaii, I'm part of the minority, so I get a weird looking glass yeah. view of it. But I wonder if getting rid of some historical idea might not perpetrate it in the future. Like you know, I think there's a. I mean, and we've had a lot of discussion about this in the last couple of years in the museum studies world about oh, what to do with all these monuments. Right. Right. Um, I mean, you know, in Virginia, we've got all these Civil War monuments, um, and what do we do with them? And they're not memorials; they're monuments. And one of the things that I have to discuss with students is the difference. Right. I mean, a monument is something which is is erected in order to pay homage to somebody, whereas a memorial is about remembering 
somebody. There's a, a subtle difference there, right? Um, but a lot of these monuments have been taken down and the discussion about what to do with them. Um, and in general, it seems the general consensus is, you know, they need to be put into a museum or put someplace, you know, like that, not just be on public display like they have been. Um, most recently, there was one, oh, I was talking to somebody about this a couple of weeks ago that was taken down here in Virginia, and I forget where it was or what it was, but apparently the somebody bought it. And mm. I mean, they, they've got they've got it in their yard at the moment. Um, yeah, I mean, oddly enough, and not because they necessarily agree with anything, but they it's just a matter of saving right. the, the, the item. Um, but I, I think that this, you know, and, and the only thing that I can think of is as a Jew, you know, I, I wouldn't want to attend Adolf Hitler High School, right? <laughs> right, right. So you know, I, I can appreciate if someone is. African American and doesn't want to attend, you know, Robert right. E. Lee um, Elementary School, um, and, and I get that. I do think it's important that we keep our history and that we understand our history. Obviously, we we are well aware that if we don't understand our history, we're going to relive it. Um, but by the same token, there certainly is a line there between you know, what's um, appropriate, and I use air quotes, um, and what is uh, over the line when we're being um, a little too sensitive to everybody's itches and, and, and annoyances. Um, in some ways, you know, that's, that's, that's part of life, unfortunately. I mean, I grew up in, in the Bronx in the 1960s and 70s, and um, I mean, I experienced anti-Semitism growing up. I remember certain things. I wasn't really aware of what it was at the time because I was too young, but reflecting back on it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that was an example. Um, you know, it would be nice if there was no anti-Semitism. It's not going to happen. Um, you know, it's it's a part of who unfortunately the, the the species is that we have sense of hate for certain groups of people and that's part of that shadow self yeah right? now, some people are able to deal with that i mean you see these the these folks who i mean i guess it's been years now since these uh talk shows i mean i remember donahue having yeah. you know reformed nazis on yeah right? you know and and you know, hey, more power to them if they can do that. But I, I think it's it was pretty rare then, and it's probably even rarer now. But, I mean, it is possible. I mean, I, I can remember one of the first times I visited my friend who's a, a, a Cistercian monk in Massachusetts, when I visited the monastery, um, we were walking and uh, on the grounds, and the, the Cistercians uh, have their own sign language. The Cistercian order used to take a vow of silence. They don't anymore. They, they gave that up. But they had their own sign language, different from American sign language. Um, and we were walking uh, on the grounds, and we passed an older monk was walking towards us. And, and he and my friend signed something to each other. And I'd never seen this before. And uh, once we walked past, I said, you know, what was that all about? And he explained that 
you know, that older monk still retains the vow of silence and uses the sign language. And I said, oh, how interesting. He said, yeah. He said, interesting story about that guy. Okay. That guy came to the monastery in the 1950s. Um, nobody really knew much about him because they took a vow of silence. So there wasn't much discussion going on, at least amongst the brothers. You didn't get to know people the way that you would today. And uh, my friend said that it wasn't until the 1980s after they'd given up the vow of silence, when they started to open up a little bit, that they heard about his story. He had been a Nazi. Um, and when he escaped Nazi Germany and came to the U.S., he entered the monastery in order to, as he saw, atone and repent for what he had done. I'll, I'll never forget that because it was so wow. chilling. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, we deal with our shadow selves in different ways, don't we? Um, you know, there's a guy who was dealing with his shadow self, and it must have been, it had to have been torturous. Um, we're talking about doing this without therapy, right? I mean, he did this on his own, I'm assuming, um, you know, in, in, in a personal relationship, I guess, that he had developed with, with God in order to reconcile what he had done and move forward with the rest of his life, which was, you know, another 60 years. Uh, he he's now passed, but uh, I think he lived well into his eighties. It's a, it's also a very good way for people to not know who you are. If you can't Absolutely. say anything, you know what I well, mean. Sure, sure. And and, and <laughs> we hear stories about that all the time. I mean, right. nuns and monks who you know enter that life in order to to escape and assume a, a different a new identity. Because of course, when you take your final vows as a monk or a nun, you actually do take on a new identity, a new name. Um, you are in a way, uh, you know, rebaptized, and uh, so you can dismiss the old you and the new you. But, but the, of course, you know, let's go all Carl Jung on your ass. Yeah, do you ever really do that? You know, <laughs> there's no. I was just gonna say, there's no escape. You, it's no one is more you. critical than you on yourself. Yeah, and to be quiet and alone with your thoughts when you've done something horrible. It's gotta Ooh. be. Brutal. It's gotta be brutal. Yeah, but, you know. Hey, more power to him right, for doing right, it. You right. know, I mean, yeah, maybe the initial motivation was to escape being caught. Right. I don't know. Um, I honestly don't know. Uh, but then, you know, I as far as I'm aware, I mean, he was in the monastery for oh, I don't know about sixty years. Yeah, uh, and he was, by all accounts, you know, a, a, a good monk. Um, he did what he needed to do, and 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 was a was an upstanding guy, but. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting that the guys who lived with him lived with him for about 30 years before they found that out. Yeah, it's there's no escaping from your own thoughts. And quite honestly, it's your own thoughts that do you in or make you. You know, you, it's nice to have someone to bounce things off of or to console you. But ultimately, when you look at the monsters or the saints of history, it's usually been their own doing that has got them to where they are. Yeah. Well, and that's why, you know, through Jungian therapy, I mean, it, yeah. it, you're, do, you're doing most of the work. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the therapist is a facilitator. I mean, you've got to be willing to do the work. And that keeps coming up in in all of anything I read about about Jung. I mean, even the piece that I that I read you earlier, the little bit from Ursula Le Guin, talking about, you know, you, you've got to do the work. Um, you've got to be willing to do the work. 
Yeah, I read a little blurb on Young and Alchemy, and he talks about dissolve and integrate. And it's great advice for whether you're looking at the world and trying to solve a problem or you're talking about your shadow or you're trying to understand the archetype in which you inhabit. Like, you know, if you can dissolve it and then integrate it, you know, it's like a metaphor for the philosopher's stone, which you could yeah. argue you are. Right. And, and, and when you talk about Jung and alchemy, um, you know, my, my students are always thrown by that because they think about alchemy and they think about Harry Potter and they're like, <laughs> he's turning, you know, base metals into gold. What, 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 you know, it's like, no, I don't know what we're talking about. I mean, he's using the, the, the structure and the, the science of alchemy in order to apply it to how we can change our, our selves, how we can transform ourselves. And uh, boy, they really struggle with that idea. And it's hard to, to, to get through to them that he's talking about really just transforming yourself, which, you know, and, and I think part of it is that it is going to be as difficult as, you know, turning a base metal into gold. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you can look back at the men of gold, men of iron and men of bronze back in the Homeric verses or, you know, back in the the literature the classic literature and I, I think you get the same sense of of alchemy there yeah definitely definitely and and i mean and, and it's it, it what, what what's interesting is i had a, a friend who when i was in graduate school did was doing his doctoral dissertation on alchemy in early american literature and mm -hmm. he was using a lot of young um because mm -hmm. he was reading poe and hawthorne and and i i didn't understand what he was talking about because i didn't know enough about young at that point um, I hadn't really done my own deep dive into it. And now looking back on it, you know, it's one of those, oh, now I get it. Um, now I understand what he's talking about. But I, I think that, you know, and not to belabor it, but I, I, Jung is just so rich in in personal growth. I mean, you know, the, the course that I teach on Jung, I mean, my students – conventionally really love it and most yeah. of them had very little to no exposure to young coming into the course and um they have very different reactions to him but more than that the reading that we do in the course and the assignments that you do in the course encourage them to embark on that kind of journey of, of personal growth and i think that that's really what they they get out of it more even than than anything about Jung. For our listeners out there, if, if they're interested in the shadow, like what books would you recommend people maybe take a look at? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I would read Jung's three-page piece on the shadow in his book, Ion, which is A-I-O-N. Um, it's very readable, very short. Um, and then the, the there's an, I think it's an appendix actually, in Eric Newman's book, Depth, Psychology, and the New Ethics. Mm. Um, so Newman was a, um, a student of Jung, um, wrote some, some really some of the more important books of the 20th century on the, the goddess and, uh, and consciousness, um, two really fantastic books. But this book, Depth, Depth, it's hard to say, Depth <laughs> Psychology and the New Ethic, um, has an appendix in it at the back. Um, it's the very last thing in the book, which is, I think, about 10 pages long, and it is called 
Reflections on the Shadow. Mm. Um, and it's a really succinct, good sort of overview of what Jung has to say about the shadow and then how it can be then um, put into good use, whether you are, you know, doing work with yourself or, you know, work as I do a lot with literary characters, right? Looking at literary characters and understanding the aspects of their personalities. That's, that's such awesome advice. I'm so thankful that you're here and I'm so thankful that you're teaching people and you're getting the feedback from students like, Oh, they're, they're really liking this. And I really enjoy our conversations. They're really rich and rewarding. You always have these awesome stories about, you know, I, I don't, I don't know of anybody else or any other podcast or any other anywhere else that people can get this information to get to hear these stories about the monk who was a Nazi and like, you know, like there's just so much awesome stuff, David. Thank you for spending time with us. What do you got coming up? What is it blog going to be about this week and, and where can people find you? What are you excited about? Sure. So my uh, website is David A. Solomon, S-A-L-O-M-O-N.com. And uh, you can find the links to all my books and the blog and, uh, media appearances and my consulting. Um, just posted a blog uh, last week, I think, about resilience um, and talking about uh, how we have looked at resilience culturally and think, oh, this is, yeah, we need to be resilient. And um, I sort of talk a little bit about how, yeah, it's not a bad thing to be resilient, but we also shouldn't negate what gets us there, right? <laughs> Um, that we go through some trauma and some difficulty to arrive at that spot. Um, so that's that's up there now and uh, working on a next blog post and um, some other writing pieces and uh, hopefully going to get uh, to talk to some folks up in the New York area uh, next month. Well, is it October already? It is October yeah. already. Yep. Good Lord, it's October already. <laughs> um, yes, in November. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I... I really think that we are emerging out of our shadow. And I think it's conversations like this and good people in the world that are going to bring us to the light and help us see the world the way it can be instead of maybe the way it's going. So mm. I'm looking forward to our future conversations. Oh, you know what? A real quick side note. There's a really interesting phenomenon that happens here in Hawaii and I think along the equator. And that is, in the height of summer, it might be on the solstice. You can go outside and you actually don't have a shadow because at noon, mm. the sun is directly above you. And yeah. I remember I saw it this year for the first time. I was working really? and I w went outside and there's all these people and they go, look, no shadow. And I looked up and it was a clear day and I looked down and lo and behold, there was just my, you know, just right up below me, there was some darkness, but there was nothing cast to the side of me. It was wow. a fascinating little thing right there. Yeah, that really is. That really is. Yeah. I wonder if that, yeah, I mean, it, it it makes me think of the kinds of things that you can do, uh, you know, going to Stonehenge in England at certain times of the year when the, the, the sun is lined up. Yeah. Um, that's a really interesting phenomenon. Yeah. It makes me think like, you know, very rarely you can have some moments of clarity where you're not bogged down by the darkness that is everything yeah. around you, you know, <laughs> but it's very yeah. rare. Yeah. You must embrace it when it's there. <laughs> yeah. No, agreed. Agreed. So that's what we got for today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for taking some time for for spending with spending some time with us on the podcast. Please check out David's blog, read his book. I think you'll like it. Read all of his books. He's got another one coming up, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Aloha, ladies and gentlemen.
Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.